Though these aspects of Jesus' nature as well as our human nature may seem in conflict with one another, they aren't as different as they might first seem. When they come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, the Lord needs them and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet. Tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and they sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds were ahead of them, and they followed them were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. As we've often heard in the Middle East in that time, world leaders or kings would enter the city on a, on a horse, especially in, in, in times of war. And there's potentially some time of professional or parade throughout the city. But Jesus, the King, the Messiah, declared his kingdom in a different way. Jesus was coming into Jerusalem with his disciples to celebrate the Passover. Passover was one of the most holy practices which celebrated God freeing the people from slavery in Egypt. Jesus had already shared with his disciples that in Jerusalem he would be put on trial and crucified, but on the third day he'd be raised again. In fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy, of which the Jewish people were aware, he gave instructions to two of his disciples to find a donkey and her colt and bring them to him. Where a horse signified war, a donkey signified peace, service, patience, obedience, suffering, and humility. In addition, Zechariah's prophecy had stated, Tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples put their cloaks on the donkey and Jesus sat on it. The large crowd who had gathered also put their cloaks on the road and cut branches from she, trees. Reported in John's gospel was there were palm trees and spread them on the road. The large crowd that had gathered saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. They were calling for their king to save us now. One of my primary points of encouragement today is for each of us to continue to follow Jesus' model of humility. This may not be a surprise to those who have heard me preach before, because humility and having a healthy perspective on oneself is dear to my heart. And I think about it in many situations every day at work. I'm not just encouraging us to act humble so that we look like good Christians, but to have a clear understanding of what it psychologically and spiritually means to be humble. In a book entitled Handbook of Humility, Theory, Research, and Applications, 
the editors state, humility involves having an accurate self-perception, a modest self-portrayal, and an other-oriented relational stance. I'm asking us to consider what it means to have a perspective of humility that pervades how we look at all of life. An accurate self-perception means having a proper view of value, our value, as well as understanding our need for God. Many of us have been given direct messages and intuitively learned from childhood that our value is in essence determined by some nebulous hierarchy or comparison. If I'm the oldest child, I'm of more value. If I'm a male, I'm of more value. If I'm smart or do well in school, I'm of more value. If I'm a good at a sport, I'm of more value. If my skin is of a particular tone, I'm of more value. If my face or body is a certain look, I am of more value. If my family has nice clothes or owns certain things, I am of more value. For many, it's challenging not to take these comparisons into adulthood and create new contexts for comparison. If my income is at a certain level, I'm of more value. If I own my home or my home has certain features, I am of more value. If my body or my face look a certain way, I am of more value. If I'm able to be a leader or teach Sunday school or preach, I am of more value. I appreciate how Michelle Obama stated it in The Light We Carry. This sort of self-consciousness is almost a developmental stage, something to endure, learn from, and try to grow past. But for many people, that feeling of not fitting, of having to exist outside the norms being presented to you, often persists deep into adulthood. Do I belong? What do others think of me? How am I seen? We ask these questions and we contort ourselves sometimes to get answers that don't hurt. We adjust, hide, and, comp and compensate in order to manage our, our differentness in relation to the spaces we find ourselves in. We wear different masks, brave faces really, for different situations, hoping to feel more safety or come closer to a sense of belonging, but still never feeling fully like ourselves. Along with these learned comparisons, many of us have also been taught not to be prideful or proud. The implication can be that in having confidence in something about ourselves or something we're able to do, we are becoming sinful in our confidence or pride. However, the warning to not be prideful can then lead to further devalue ourselves and struggle in navigating the, the adult life. Even if we do find a way to put aside these cultural biases and do our best to not have too much pride, we're left trying to grasp how to have a healthy or proper perspective on how we see ourselves in our relationships and in our world. What I'm encouraging us to do is gain a perspective that recognizes our intrinsic value as humans, not cluttered by continuous comparisons to others or to unreasonable self-expectations. Also adding from a biblical perspective that we are all children of God and in need of God. We are given value by God, but are of no more value or less value than our sisters and brothers beside us. In my view, it is healthy 
mentally and spiritually, to see ourselves as having abilities and talents, but they don't change our value. Having confidence in the gifts God has given us doesn't make us prideful or arrogant. What can make us arrogant is if we believe these abilities make us more important or more valuable than someone else. Humility is having a perspective of ourselves and sufficient self-esteem to understand that when we're doing well, we don't need to boast or gloat about it. Humility allows me to accept, if not embrace, my humanity. As a, a human, I will be imperfect and make mistakes. However, embracing my humanity allows me to learn from those mistakes. If these mistakes are part of sin, I can confess the sin to God and to the person I've affected and seek grace and forgiveness. As a human, I'm in need of God's grace and forgiveness. I need God's presence and spirit to teach me and guide me and protect me from temptation. Humility allows us to both lead and to follow while trusting in the wisdom of God. We have gaps in our knowledge and do well to humbly seek light from God and from others to address our blind spots. Humility allows us to have more contentment in life and a better sense of well-being because we have a clear understanding that humility is a strength, not a weakness or a passive trait. We are better able to be comfortable with who we are and who we are not. Humility is, is an attitude of modest self-portrayal that comes from understanding our place in the larger order of things. It entails not taking our desires, successes, or failings too seriously. Humility is the ability to view ourselves accurately as an individual with talents as well as flaws. It involves understanding both our strengths as well as in the ways we which we do well to grow. These perspectives are then displayed in how we act and how we relate to others. Another oriented stance shows us that we are not alone in our struggles. It also allows us to extend more compassion and empathy to others. Those who practice humility are more likely con to consider others' beliefs and opinions. This is in part because humility offers the opportunity to become less self-involved and more attuned to the feelings of others. Positive relationships are better developed when we can be happy for others and their accomplishments and not overly affected by jealousy or self-pity. This other-oriented stance considers we need each other and others too need, need us to show compassion, respect, and caring. If we are over-focused on what others are thinking about us, it's challenging to focus on what they may need from us. When we are with someone we perceive to be humble, we are more relaxed because we trust them to not unfairly judge us. They're able to see their own strengths and limitations without defensiveness or judgment. And we are offering a gift when we are able to do the same to others, to not be defensive or judgmental. Let us now shift to scene two, Jesus in the temple. <clears throat> then Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who were selling and buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he cured them. 
But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the amazing things that he did and heard the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they became angry and said to him, Do you not hear what they are saying? He said to them, Yes. Have you never heard out of the mounts of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise for yourself. He left them, went out of the city to Bethany, and spent the night there. Matthew's use of the word then at the beginning of this passage, as well as Luke and his gospel, seem to give the indication that Jesus went right from entering to Jerusalem to the temple. Mark portrays that Jesus went to the temple and looked around at everything. And because it was not already late, he went to Bethany with his disciples and came back the next day. John includes the account of Jesus confronting injustices in the temple early in his gospel after the wedding at Cana. No matter what the actual timing, part of what I note is Jesus was calling out those who were profiting from their sales by taking advantage of others in the sacred space of prayer, as well as calling out the money changers' choice to take over a lot of the Gentile area of the temple. According to the source I read, the money changers served as an important function within the temple. For a fee or a temple tax, they exchanged a person's foreign coins into those that were acceptable within the temple. It's much like the fee, pay we, fee we pay when we go to another country and exchange our money for the local currency. Apparently only the half shekel coin of the temple, which the priests in the temple used, was allowed as atonement money to buy sacrificial animals for atonement for sins. Those coming from foreign lands with foreign currency, or those who had Roman coins, had to change their money in order to buy their animals for sacrifice. And the money changing was one of the largest revenues for the temple. The money changers oversaw a massive temple economy and were therefore one of the most powerful sects in Israel. Because they were able to raise a great deal of money for the temple, they were in a position of power. They had a monopoly on the half shekel and therefore could change, charge whatever they wanted for the exchange. Those who could not afford it were left out. And the spiritual practice of persons buying sacrifices to atone for their sins was being used to gain power and riches. In addition, the money changers' tables were set up in the court of the Gentiles, part of the temple. This is the only area of the temple the non-Jews could enter. However, that area became crowded with money changers, doves, and other animals, and people. Activity not very conducive for prayer or worship. Jesus' action showed his righteous anger at what was happening, and his words evoked the prophet Isaiah and Jeremiah. My house, God's house, will be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. In both his actions and words, he was calling out what he believed to be injustice happening within the temple. The temple was where God was said to dwell. People believed what happened there reflected the heart of God. And it was, it was being used for profit and for marginalizing people. As Sean noted several weeks when preaching on Matthew 22 in the invitation to the wedding banquet, he noted that people holding the banquet, like the money changers, were creating barriers of access to the life of God. They were turning people into commodities to be used for financial gain. In his book, Fight Like Jesus, Jason Portfield states that according to Isaiah's vision, 
The temple was intended to be a place that embodied God's gracious inclusivity. In the temple, foreigners were to be welcomed and outsiders were taken in. In God's house, those normally excluded by society were given a name better than sons and daughters. In short, God's temple was to serve as a house of prayer for all nations. After quoting Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jesus cited Jeremiah's lament that the temple was becoming a den of robbers. Centuries earlier, Jeremiah had stood in the temple and warned God's people to stop behaving as if their participation in temple activities excused their unjust lifestyles. The author also states, Jesus used the words of Isaiah and Jeremiah to explain that his actions sought to stop the temple's exploitive and marginalizing practices. By overturning tables and driving out animals, Jesus suspended the temple's commercial operations. Profit hearing came to a halt. And by sending away, yeah, <laughs> by sending away, Sending away the perpetrators of injustice, Jesus made room for those excluded to be welcomed in. When discussing the temple cleansing, we often overlook the fact that after the many changers and animal sellers were out, the blind and lame came in and were healed. For those marginalized people, their admittance into the temple was just as miraculous as the physical healing they received. Mosaic law prohibited those with physical defects from offering sacrifices, and David was banned them, had banned them from entering the temple. Jesus, with both his actions and his words, modeled confronting injustice with direct assertiveness. Most of us tend to be a bit uncomfortable with both direct words and intense actions. I'll be honest, when I was searching for a video which showed the acting out of the scripture, a part of me wanted to find one that didn't show Jesus is so angry, or less loud at the very least. What I came to better understand is that though Jesus showed his anger, he wasn't just angry for anger's sake. He was showing his love for all people in his actions. He was aware of his role in God's kingdom, while also showing us what it means to show love by calling out injustices. Even though we may be uncomfortable with expressions of anger, especially intense ones, or conflict in general, we do well to not run from it as a method of self-protection. By, primar by primarily protecting ourselves, we may be sacrificing someone else's well-being or even their life. I believe Jesus knew his actions would draw criticism and may have played a significant role in his being tried and crucified. However, he chose out of love for all people to directly confront the injustices around him. Though most of our expressions of anger might be more out of what we perceive to be injustice against ourselves, I do believe appropriate expressions of anger are valid, and I emphasize appropriate, but what I believe Jesus modeled here was a righteous anger that calls injustice to light and advocates for those who have a limited voice or power. As we now enter Holy Week with its varied experiences and focus on Jesus' sacrifice, as we look toward the celebration of Easter and Christ's resurrection, 
May we also be reminded of Jesus' humility and Jesus' call for justice.